Welcome to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to educating and empowering men to address erectile dysfunction, improve confidence, and enhance the satisfaction in their relationships. This podcast is brought to you by ErectionIQ.com. Learn more at ErectionIQ.com. Welcome to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. I am Mark Goldberg, Certified Sex Therapist. I am deeply passionate about working with men like you to help resolve their ED. Today we are joined by Dr. Peter Canaris. Dr. Canaris is a renowned psychologist and sex therapist. He has developed some unique and groundbreaking approaches to addressing cyber infidelity and out-of-control sexual behaviors. He has appeared in numerous publications and media and has served as director of some of the most reputable therapy clinics in New York. Dr. Canaris also maintains a website with pertinent information on these topics at cyberinfidelityhelp.com. So today we want to understand more about your work and in particular, the impact of cyber infidelity on on individuals, couples, and sexual function. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Canaris, can you start off by telling us what is cyber infidelity? Well, cyber infidelity is basically infidelity that is initiated and maintained through the use of the internet or any form of electronic media. You know, I'll often talk about it, Mark, is, is uh, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll make the distinction between what I call 20th century versus 21st century infidelity. What I mean by 20th century infidelity is largely before the proliferation of the internet and the, the various devices that we use, uh, you know, from laptops to particularly uh, smartphones. And in those days, uh, when infidelity would occur, you know, typically the meeting uh, would happen uh, at work, uh, at the water cooler, maybe at the gym, uh, or while sitting in a uh, in a bar. And it would require, in, in essence, that sort of face-to-face, typically type of meeting. Uh, and then, if it was maintained, you know, there would be some maintenance, perhaps by phone, but it would be largely face-to-face in many respects. Well, in the 21st century, as as our technological capacities have continued to develop, you know, smartphone, broadband, uh, uh, social media, and the like, very often the the initial contact, the initial meeting, is via those electronics, and very often uh, the infidelity continues to occur based on that system, on that methodology, and and uh, is maintained by the internet. And uh, sometimes uh, the person uh, will actually meet, and sometimes they never actually physically meet face-to-face, but the affair is conducted electronically. As I'm hearing you describe the difference between 20th century and 21st century infidelity, does that have implications in terms of how you approach this? In other words, going from the water cooler to a messaging platform, does that make a difference in terms of the impact of this infidelity and how something like this is addressed either with a therapist or between the couple? Well, this, uh, this is a vital question that you're asking, uh, and it is a, the answer is a resounding yes. It makes all the difference in the world. And really, it, it speaks to what kind of motivated me to develop you know, my own unique treatment model for addressing infidelity and 
and cyber infidelity. The old models of treatment and ways of addressing this really addressed the 20th century problem, which which is it would it would kind of look at what is it within the individual that might be uh, motivating this behavior. It would look at and surmise that there would be a couple pro- couple's problem that was driving the behavior and leading uh, leading to the infidelity. And certainly today, you know, or in you know the the 21st century approach, those things are still relevant. Uh, and, and need to be understood. But the big missing factor that the old treatment models typically uh, would not or could not address is this phenomena of the electronics, of the internet, of social media, of the smartphone, of the uh, of of the insidious nature of uh, of the of the accessibility. Uh, the uh, the availability, the affordability, and the portability of these devices that have really made a, a different kind of issue, a different kind of problem. That unless unless we address the technological aspect and the threat that it provides uh, and, and it poses, and the uniqueness to it, uh, then so often in treatment we're missing the boat. So uh, again, the model that I have developed is focused on adding that very uh, important and even vital piece to the to the solution to the treatment. And it sounds like it's a very important element that does need to be addressed. And really, to that end, can you help our listeners understand how common is this issue of cyber infidelity? You know, we 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 don't really have reliable data data in terms of numbers. But what I can tell you clinically is that it is the new infidelity. You you will almost, uh, I won't say never, but rarely encounter a case where the issue is infidelity and some some feature of the infidelity is not in a in uh, on on the internet is not cyber. Whether uh, the meeting uh, was on social media, an old flame uh, who has uh, come back uh, and made contact, whether uh, there are issues of camming, you know, which is the use of of the uh, the, the camera on the internet and uh, uh, sexual activity going on between the person on the other end of the camera, whether sexting is is taking place. Uh, what I have been encountering is that uh, j- just about all of the cases have some feature of this. You, you almost uh, never run into, you know, again, what I'm calling the, the 20th century version of infidelity anymore. So, so uh, again, in, in addressing the issue for a couple, uh, you've got to take this into account and, uh, and, and not not have that blindness to the role that the technology is playing in the problem. This technology is a part of our lives. It's almost impossible to bunch these into two separate categories at this point because we communicate through technology and we're engaging with many, many people, probably with everybody in our lives through some form of technology at times. So this is part of the picture of infidelity. Yes, uh, it, it is. It is at this point woven into it. 
an analogy, Mark, that I sometimes use uh, in terms of the difference of how it was and how it is, uh, is is too bullying, you know, for for children. Uh, again, uh, in the old days, uh, a, a child would go to school, and if they're going to be teased or or bullied, it would occur in the schoolyard or in the cafeteria, uh, and and they come home and maybe be fearful of going to school. But the home would be a safe haven. At least it would be a place where uh, where they could feel safer and and secure. Uh, well, in the 21st century, bullying now takes the form electronically of coming into the home. And we've got kids that are being terrorized in their bedrooms uh, via social media or texts or, or other such forms. Uh, and, 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 and now it comes to you. Well, with the analogy, what I'm saying is that that infidelity now, you had to, you had to really be motivated and, and go out and look for it. Okay, now it comes to you. It finds you through the next click, through the next like, through the through the next contact of of that person who uh, wants to get to know you, or wants to show you a, a, a sexual picture, whatever the case may be. And, and now it's uh, you know another anal- analogy that I sometimes use, Mark, is to a police thing. You know, it's like all of us have the potential, I think, for bad behavior. Okay, uh, and 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 sometimes we'll actively seek it and engage in it. But the way a police thing works is it invites a person into a, an artificial situation that they will then behave badly in that may never have happened in their lives without that sting. And 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 we see this with uh, uh, the issue of cyber infidelity. So not only does it change the fabric of infidelity, but what I'm gathering is that it's also making it a whole lot easier and more accessible. And with increased access, you know, comes an enticement of human nature to engage in uh, forms of behavior that a person may not even want to, but is really tempted to. That That is absolutely, uh, absolutely correct. And, and that also speaks to the point we made earlier, whereby that automatic assumption that, you know, there's something wrong with the relationship or there's something wrong with the individual, we've got to examine that and say, you know, that can be the case and we need to assess that. But that does not have to be the, the case. There, there can be this pull that is largely a function of the technology that leads to the problem. Now, Dr. Canaris, do you differentiate between pornography and interacting with other people through messaging or dating apps? Well, there, uh, what I look for is the, the differentiation and the definition being provided by the couple or by the people that are involved. And, and that's the, really their determination. Which I, you know, at times I try to share uh, uh, information uh, and education on the topic, uh, but people have all kinds of views about pornography, uh, and there's there there are some couples that will share pornography uh, together and and use that as a, a benefit and enhancement on on their sexual relationship. Uh, there are other couples where one person is a consumer of pornography and it's just fine with the partner. 
And there are other couples that view uh, the, the, the viewing of pornography as infidelity. You know, so it becomes my job to both respect their, their views, but also to provide uh, education about pornography so they can make a, uh, you know, sort of informed uh, decision of how they are viewing it in their lives and within their relationship. So the, the short answer, Mark, is that, no, I do not consider pornography uh, to be the equivalent of infidelity, but my opinion is less important than the people involved. So can you please speak to that last category of people? As a therapist, it's something that I encounter where a person has a partner who's engaging in use of pornography and they really feel like this is a total and utter violation of the relationship equivalent to actually engaging with another person. Can I ask just how how do you approach that? What type of education do you provide while respecting that person's inner experience and what they're feeling? Well, like like so much of the work, uh, it really begins with a careful assessment and understanding of where the person is coming from, how their views have been informed. Is it is the objection coming uh, uh, primarily from uh, a religious objection? Is there a uh, a cultural prohibition to viewing uh, pornography? Is it is it psychological, where uh, there there is a, 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 a psychological threat? that is being experienced that, oh, well, my partner is viewing uh, these perfect bodies and now I feel inadequate by comparison. So th there really is not a, uh, a, a general approach to dealing with that. It is, it is directed by the assessment and the understanding of where to intervene and then where you go with that with the partner who is viewing the pornography. Uh, what uh, I, I will look for them to establish for themselves what they believe to be uh, what I call guidelines to sexual wellness. And do they believe pornography is is problematic? Do they what are their what are their values? What are their attitudes about pornography? And then once that's firmly established, how does that match up with a partner and how do they work it out? Okay, is it something that can be worked out? If, 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 if a partner is terribly threatened by it, uh, will the consumer of pornography say, you, you know what? No, I'm not, this, uh, uh, I'm not this shameful degenerate because I watch pornography, but I will, I will abstain from pornography for the sake of my partner. Can that be done without resentment? Or is it something that the partner now has to look at and say, wait a minute, you know, I've been, I've been shaming my partner because of my own feelings of threat, and I've got to work on that. So this, this really could go uh, a million different ways. If I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like you try to hold a subjective world that the partner may be experiencing and try to help the couple learn how to create an atmosphere where that subjective world can be respected. In other words, not passing judgment on pornography use per se, making sure to not shame the person who is engaging in the pornography while helping the couple to create an atmosphere where their relationship um, can be strengthened 
by eliminating the use of the pornography, not because it's objectively a problem, but because in the subjective world of their relationship or of the partner's needs, it's it's creating havoc and distress. And that's the benefit of removing that behavior. Is that correct? Uh, would you mind sitting in on some of my sessions? Because I think I'd like to have you explain that to some of my clients. Uh, excellent. <laughs> very, very well put and very succinctly put. Thank you. So Dr. Canaris, let's say cyber infidelity has occurred. And to keep this a little bit more easy to understand and simplistic, let's assume for a moment that the cyber infidelity has not progressed to an actual uh, face-to-face encounter or an actual sexual encounter between the two people. What does a recovery process look like for a couple who's experienced cyber infidelity alone? Well, uh, in, in, in practice, Mark, what I tend to find is whether or not the uh, extra, extra relational involvement has pro- progressed to actual face-to-face or uh, at the level of cyber, the approach uh, tends to be similar uh, because the harm and the effect tends to be quite similar. We might say it's on a continuum, but I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, I find that the damage done really looks the same in either case. And so to, to your question of, you know, how do we approach it? What do we do? I, I, I typically embark upon a sort of a four-phase assessment process. I will see the couple together. I will want to see at least one session with each partner. Sometimes that leads to more. Uh, and then a bringing back together of the partners together as as that fourth phase, and and the approach that I that I use, you know, is is what I call a a collaborative cooperative approach, where uh, we we steer clear of what in these types of situations so often becomes a cat and mouse game, of uh, you know uh, uh, one person. Uh, monitoring and the other person, the the, the unfaithful partner, now being uh, chased and, and 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 accused and and all of that, uh, and we take the approach rather of lining up collaboratively and cooperatively together, where rather than seeing each other as the enemy, okay, the enemy is the technology. The, en- the enemy, and we, we call this externalization, okay? So now we, we form a treatment team, the couple along with a therapist, and we, we, we need to manage the technology in such a way that it now begins to downsize the threat. And that, that, that becomes a, a vital piece of the work in addition to all the work that has to be done in, in developing an understanding of how this came about, what were the influences, what were the factors, both technologically, uh, psychologically of, of the individual, interpersonally of the couple, that's all got to get assessed. But but it's done uh, in this collaborative way where it feels like we're, we formed the treatment team and we're all on the same side where where the heart of this problem has been externalized the enemy is out there and we have to fight that enemy together 
So it sounds like you try to create an atmosphere or an environment within the couple's relationship where they are working on the same team to address, tackle, or eliminate been externalized in this case would be the technology that opened the door and led to this. So as a follow-up, I'm wondering what happens if the non-cyber infidelity engaging partner says to you as the therapist, well, I didn't do anything. This is the other one's problem. Why should I have to be a part of this? Or why should I have to do anything? It's up to him or her to change their behavior. How do you, how do you respond to that? That, that does happen. Okay. That, that's not uncommon where typically what you'll find in how that will present is the sense of, of the partner wanting to distance, distance themselves from uh, the other partner's behavior. And very often the way that that happens, unfortunately, is that the partner who is presented with the problem, you know, what we sometimes call the identified patient, it comes in and is is uh, self-labeled or labeled by the partner as, well, you know, this is a uh, this is a sex addict. This person is uh, degenerate. They're they're shamed. They're sick. They're they're presented in that way, and it's a it's an unfortunate model, I believe, that doesn't have a lot of good supporting evidence to it that shames the person who's engaged in the behavior and distances the other person that can serve uh, sort of a, uh, a, a preservation value to that person as, well, gee, I'm not a part of this. I, I just happen to be with this sick person. That, that, that's something that we have to sort of deconstruct very gently because sometimes the people are very married to that notion of sex addiction, which has a lot of, you know, a lot of play in the popular media. And it's, it's, uh, while it's uh, highly controversial professionally, uh, it is very accepted popularly. So we got to take that into account and respect that as we move toward, uh, a different way of looking at this. And, and one of the ways of addressing that with the partner is to let the, let the partner know that while you may have had nothing to do with causing this problem, uh, you are vital uh, uh, as part of the solution to the problem. So your involvement and participation is needed in order to, to have us move forward. And sometimes that allows the it allows the person to break the ice and begin to participate in that way without feeling too threatened, uh, because most partners, or I should say, many partners, feel uh, wounded by the behavior of the unfaithful partner, and that wound very often uh, carries a, 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 a deep pain that whether it's uh, whether they're aware of it or not they feel somehow responsible and responsible because of an implied inadequacy. Uh, I'm not good enough. I'm not sexy enough. Uh, he didn't care for me enough. Uh, especially, especially a relationship that's gone on for a while. Well, you know, I put on 10 extra pounds or there were some wrinkles there that weren't there before. Uh, and that's why, uh, this is happening, even though I might not be stating that instead I'm saying it's, you know, it's just this sick guy who, who's doing this. Um, we've got to 
we got if, if treatment's going to be successful, we got to find our way uh, uh, constructively to addressing that wound. And that makes a lot of sense. So one of the things that you mentioned previously is this element of monitoring and chasing, which I think is common in you know the immediate after effects of infidelity coming to light in a relationship. One of the questions that I get a lot that I want to turn over to you is, can trust actually be reestablished to the point that the monitoring and the chase and and the experience of being chased can actually dissipate? And if so, what is that process and what are some of the challenges to getting there? Well, this is so terribly important and really is at the heart of my model of treatment uh, for infidelity, cyber infidelity. And that's the reestablishment of trust. It's, it's a tough one because what happens is most couples um, follow un, un, unknowingly, unwittingly, what I, what I refer to as uh, a blind trust approach in their relationship. You know, I've, I met the person that's for me. Uh, we embark upon life together. Uh, maybe we're uh, raising a family uh, uh, and, you know, this is my partner, this is my life partner, uh, and I trust you implicitly, and now the bad thing happens. Okay, what am I going to do with that? All right, I am, I'm shattered. Uh, uh, my reality is shaken in terms of the, the way I was looking at the world before this. I don't know what to believe in. I don't feel like I'm on firm ground. My uh uh, I, I'd like to trust again, but it feels like if I go back to the only model I know, which is the blind blind faith model, uh, I feel too vulnerable. And if anything were to happen, I'd feel like a fool, sometimes you know, reinforced by well-intended uh, friends and family saying, you know, once a liar, always a liar. You can't trust them. Uh, you got this going through your head. So now that individual is completely lost at sea on how to even contemplate getting back to trust. And trust becomes this very tricky business in that regard. So this is where I introduce them to uh, a different model of trust, which I'm calling, uh, you know, I've called the evidence-based model of trust. This is one where trust can slowly be reestablished over time relatively through ex- through new experience. Uh, and I slowly move forward and we, we evaluate the behaviors and the behaviors are based on transparency, clear communication, uh, and, and the end of secrecy. Because invariably the affair uh, behaviors uh, were involved with secrecy Secrecy is over, and even for a short time, and this is also particularly different about my uh, approach that not all my colleagues would agree with, uh, is a, a, uh, a minimizing of privacy for a time in the service of helping the partner to emotionally recover from the effects of the the affair. So in other words, you know, we're all entitled to privacy. We all expect to have a degree of privacy, no matter how much I love you. uh, What goes on in my head and and within me is is my own. 
uh, and we need to return to that. But in the short run, I'm going to make myself as open a book as I possibly can. I'm going to do it willingly. I'm going to do it without resentment. I'm going to do it as part of a collaborative, cooperative effort as in the service of restoring confidence, in in restoring a sense of safety to my partner. And over time, that will uh, you know, the fence is slowly reestablished over time as we progress, as confidence is restored, never going back to secrecy, but again, reaching a point of normal uh, privacy. Now, the challenge here is that, you know, that blind faith model, it's like, it's like a trip to Disneyland. It is, well, it's, it's like going to heaven, you know, but when the bad thing happened, we got cast out of heaven and we're not going back there. Okay, so what I have to realize is that my safety, the, as good as it gets, is going to be probabilistic. I'm going to be able to get back to where I can trust my eyes and ears and my sense to, 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 to know that I think I know what reality is again. I know what's reliable. I've seen my partner. I've, I've noticed, I've, I've seen the behaviors that are different, that make a difference in my mind, and slowly confidence becomes restored. But I have to face that awful reality that that perfect safety, I'll never achieve that. What what I will gain will be a reasonable confidence that, you know what, I'm okay and we're okay. And and I can have uh, an evidence-based trust in moving forward and repairing my relationship. And it sounds like there is a well-thought-out process toward how to help couples get there, uh, including what you've you said is, is again, somewhat controversial. Um, the notion of a counterbalance for the sake of rebalance. In other words, asking for you know the partner who has engaged in this infidelity for, for a, a decrease in where privacy should be, generally speaking, in the relationship and that balance between what we share and what we keep in the individual realm, that temporarily we may look to unbalance that for the sake of re-establishing trust and getting back toward a healthier, balanced sense of privacy and individuality and a sense of connectedness and shared space. All right. That cinches it. I'm definitely going to have to invite you to my next session because uh, <laughs> you got it. <laughs> Luckily, we're recording this. So <laughs> <laughs> okay. how does cyber infidelity relate to sexual function? In particular, the general topic of this podcast, which is erections and erectile dysfunction. That is a particular case that is uh, also quite common, where the the cyber infidelity plays a role. It's 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 development and often it's ma- maintenance. It plays a role in uh, a sexual issue. Uh, not uncommonly an erectile issue, either uh, erectile failure, uh, uh, the inability to um, obtain an erection, uh, difficulty sustaining an erection, um, uh, losing the erection, uh, sometimes even in terms of the inability to orgasm or ejaculate. Any any of those functional problems (laughs) can be a motivator for the creation of cyber infidelity. 
uh, and also a maintainer of the cyber infidelity. Why? Well, uh, it, 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 it can feel uh, that when I've had difficulties with my partner, when, when, when there is an erectile issue, so often there's an emotional consequence where the guy uh, will feel uh, a terrible sense of failure and inadequacy, where there's, uh, there may be a disappointment, upset, anger, avoidance of sex, uh, judgment. Uh, it's, it, it, it now sex, sex gets a negative valence. It gets a, a negative feeling about going there because it's, it's likely to lead, you know, it's supposed to bring us together because of positive feelings for pleasure and, and otherwise a connection. And instead now it's become tainted with negativity and, and feelings of upset. So, okay, now I, I've got this electronic outlet where either solo, I can I can kind of work and and function more freely without all of that emotional interference. And now I notice my response, my erectile response is better. It can feel safer. It can feel non-judgmental in, in, in that regard, uh, where where I'm dealing, you know, either with pictures or or, or, or stranger interaction. Uh, and and uh, you know, some sometimes. Uh, it, it becomes a pattern, okay, where now what, what can happen, and sometimes it happens in the reverse, this is less common, but it can also happen where uh, I've, I've gotten so involved with my electronic outlets that I lose, um, I lose my mojo with my partner where I don't really have much desire. And now because of the diminished desire, and the, the frequent activity on the electronic side, uh, that it's interfering with my erection. Uh, I'm not getting sufficient ex, uh, arousal stimulation, et cetera. So it can work in that direction as well. Um, you know, these, these are all uh, interactions and manifestations of uh, cyber involvement, cyber infidelity, and ED. One of the questions I think that our listeners would be interested to know is does sexual function improve when cyber infidelity is brought to a stop? Uh, uh, stated as directly and as simply as that, uh, I would generally say the answer is no. Okay. Uh, and, and that's very often where, uh, you know, sometimes you can see an improvement if it's in the second type of situation that I described where, uh, the involvement with the internet, with internet sex, uh, with cyber sex of one kind or another, has so absorbed my involvement and my intention and my interest that my functioning with my partner has been negatively affected. So now, if I if I reduce my involvement with internet sex. Okay, what what it what it can do is have the effect of restoring my sexual interest, my libido, my mojo, if you will, with my partner. So in that regard, you can see improvement, and and you can see uh, a benefit simply by reducing the involvement. But often is the case that no. Uh, 
there's something more going on that may have led to ED uh, prior to the involvement with uh, heavy internet use. So that's where we really need a, a good assessment and maybe some sex therapy to, uh, to assess and understand what, what are the underpinnings of the underpinnings of the ED, uh, what, what seems to be contributing, what seems to be causing and, and making adjustments uh, from there. And that makes a lot of sense. Now, Dr. Canaris, how are partners of people who are engaging in cyber infidelity impacted? In particular, if a man discovers that his partner has been engaging in cyber infidelity and may develop a subsequent sexual function challenge, can you tell us a little bit about what that experience is like on the receiving end of the cyber infidelity. Yeah, what what I have uh, found most most commonly, Mark, is is that uh, the partner of the cyber infidel, if you will, uh, uh, really develops a deep wound, and and that that wound uh, is one where essentially uh, the feeling that I have is that I am inadequate, and. Now, the way I respond to that feeling of inadequacy really ranges with the emotion, okay? With, with some people, the salient emotion uh, becomes uh, sadness and depression. With other people, it becomes uh, rage and anger, okay? How dare you uh, do, do this to me? Uh, uh, and, and a demonization or, or a condemnation or a pathologizing of the partner who was acted out in that sense. Um, there, there then relatedly is, uh, whether the person's aware of it or not, uh, a mourning process starts of the lost relationship. Because what I thought I had, uh, uh, or I ha- did have at one time, or hoped to have, is no more. So there's going to be a, 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 I'm going to go through that process of mourning, Okay, in order to then get to the point of examining, can there be a reconstruction? Can I reconstruct the relationship? And that's not only the uh, personal, interpersonal relationship, but the sexual relationship with my partner. And that's, you know, it's, it's complex. There are lots of moving parts and all of that, and it you know uh, uh, it would be unfair for me to give you just a general of of how it goes. I think it, that that's where it gets down to the particular people involved and exactly uh, the cause of the ED uh, is the ED was the ED pre-existing uh, the partner's affair uh, has it resulted since the partner's affair? There are so many different aspects to this that you know I think probably. You know, in our in our relatively brief time together, uh, uh, you know, we couldn't get into all these cases, which I completely understand. And our our listeners are are aware that the more moving parts there are, the more complex erectile dysfunction and understanding what's driving it does become. Um, but it does sound like that deep wound that you described um, can be emotionally distressing and rather impactful on sexual function. Without a doubt, and it's it's also interesting too because there there are times where you see the opposite of it, and this is not 
I won't say this is common, but it's it is it's not uh, terribly rare uh, where the couple will engage in a period of of uh, if you want to call it hypersexuality, uh, uh, high sexual activity immediately after the discovery. Sometimes that is a function of uh, looking to compete with the uh, uh, with the cyber lover. Uh, sometimes it's an act of desperation where I don't want you to leave me. Let me be as uh, uh, everything I can be to you sexually. Uh, and so you do see that as well. Though you know the the case of ED would be more common. Is there any final thoughts that you want to share with our listeners? Well, I, I think uh, most most directly, Mark, what I would say is that a person, you know, if you're in this position, okay, and and this has happened within your relationship, uh, and and uh, you know, if if uh, additionally you're suffering from ED as a result of it or related to it, please understand. Do not despair and and do not reach that point of desperation. Reach out for help. There truly, for these circumstances, uh, there is help available. More and more therapists are getting it and and being trained appropriately in how to address this type of situation. Uh, And uh, along with, you know, along with the medical piece of of, uh, if you're suffering from ED, certainly, uh, you know, uh, check in with your uh, your physician, urologist, et cetera. Uh, and and don't don't suffer in silence. Don't despair. Don't feel all is lost without checking it out with the appropriate professional. Because I could tell you these situations are often highly treatable and with success. Uh, I've, I've been fortunate to be able to see that. You know, so so that I, I would say that would be the the salient message, Mark, that I would I would want to impart to your audience. And we appreciate that. Once again, thank you very much for joining us on this podcast, Dr. Canaris. And clearly, Dr. Canaris is an expert in the areas of cyber infidelity, among a whole bunch of other mental health and relationship uh, areas and issues that people face. So again, Dr. Canaris, I'm just going to mention your website, cyberinfidelityhelp.com. If you want to see some of the resources or get in touch with him, you can check out that website. Thanks for listening to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. For more information on today's topic and understanding how the mind impacts erectile dysfunction, please visit ErectionIQ.com. That's ErectionIQ.com.